like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew and the 25th chapter. Matthew 25, if you're new with us, maybe you're new to the Bible, we gave you a Bible today perhaps. You can find a table of contents and you can find that it's the first book in the New Testament. And I'll ask you to turn to Matthew 25. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25, which is what we're looking at this morning, some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is about the second coming of Jesus, and I would agree. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is all about what will take place at the end of the Great Tribulation, just before Christ ushers in His kingdom, and I would agree. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is all about heaven and hell, and I would agree. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, and I would agree. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is unsettling. I would agree. Some would say that the end of Matthew 25 is amazing. And I would agree. But my question for you is, what is the end of Matthew 25 all about? It's one thing to look at the beauty of a tree. It's a whole nother issue to look at the beauty of the forest, the big picture. These things I've mentioned are vital elements. They're vital components. But what is the climax? What is the big picture? What is Jesus really getting at when He talks about what He talks about in Matthew 24, for that matter, and Matthew 25? It's all about the unmatched, unsurpassed glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what we love as Christians, because we see Jesus Christ as our great Lord, our great King, the great Sovereign One, the Ruler, the the name above every name. We, We love to glorify Jesus Christ. And so I can't wait to preach this sermon and lead you in the study of God's Word because we as Christians love Jesus Christ and His Lordship and His supremacy. That's what this is all about. I hope you have it in your mind over the last couple of weeks or maybe just today that when we read about Jesus Christ and His coming, we read about Jesus Christ and Him separating, when we read about Jesus Christ and Him talking about heaven and hell and all of these things, we are reading about the glory of Christ. When we're talking about Bible prophecy and we're talking about eschatology, which is what these things are dealing with, Jesus is speaking to these matters. There are a lot of important details. But you've missed the boat entirely if you miss this. And that is, ultimately, it's all about the glory of Christ. It's all about Him being honored for who He really is. And you've just got to love that. Well, this morning specifically, we'll look at Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And as we do so, I'd like to organize our thoughts around the text. But as we look at the text, we can look at four, what I will call four absolutely astounding displays of the glory of Christ. Four displays of the glory of Christ that should cause us all to say, we love Jesus Christ. And yes, indeed, He is glorious. That's the intent of this. Let me preview those for you right now. The first one would be his description, and I'll keep them very brief. His description, verse 31. 
the second display of his glory. Number two, his separation, verses 32 to 33. The third display of his glory here in the second coming context, his invitation, verses 34 all the way to verse 40. And fourthly and finally, another astounding display of the glory of Christ is his condemnation, verses 41 through 46. And I should say that we'll certainly spend more time on some uh, as opposed to others. But here we go. I need to take a deep breath. I had so much fun preaching first hour. I had so much fun because I love talking about the glory of Christ because I'm a Christian. And so I hope you have so much fun listening. I know it's not all fun. But I hope you get great joy resonating in your soul when you hear about the glory of Christ because really that is our ultimate aim. The ultimate end for everything is His glory and our enjoying Him as the glorious King. I hope this fuels your worship and fuels your praise. Number one, His description, the first astounding display of Christ's glory. He describes Himself. And in verse 31, you can look with me there, and you'll see that Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And I can't think of anything in that verse that isn't talking about the glory of Christ. I mean, it's the glory of Christ off the charts. It couldn't be more glory-centered. It couldn't be talking about His glory in, in, in any way. Everything about that statement in verse 31 is magnifying Christ. And so what I want to do for uh, at least several moments is to, to zero in and take a closer look. Let's see just how glorious His self-description is by looking at that even phrase by phrase. When He comes, look with me at verse 31, He comes in His glory. That's the obvious part. When Jesus comes again, He will come in His glory, His weightiness, His significance. It won't, he, he won't come as a babe in a manger. The cattle won't be lowing. No crying He makes. I think He cried then anyway, but He won't be crying now. Reverse the song. When He comes again, it will be glorious. Think about it for a moment. What, what have we seen from Jesus so far as we read through the Gospel of Matthew, as you read through the Gospel accounts? Yes, we see, we, we, we catch glimpses, we, we, we sneak peeks of His glory. Yes, He's been glorious. But this is to stand out to us as extraordinary. Because remember, how, how did He come into this world? He came into this world and, and, and His birth was surrounded by controversy. He was born to, 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 to a young teenage girl. Controversy surrounding that. And not only that, they didn't even have a place for him to be born in a stable. Not only that, uh, th there's questions about his father. And then with his father, when he grew up, who was his father? He was a, he was a carpenter. And not only that, where did Jesus live and grow up? Nazareth? The Bible even tells us, quoting people, what good thing ever came out of Nazareth from John's Gospel? The assumption is nothing. It's an insignificant town. And then we read Jesus in His life, when he, as He went on, He didn't even have a place to lay His head. Jesus lived His life as a homeless man. So when we read through all of that and we come here, second coming! 
And then what does it say? In his glory. It should be just jumping off the page and it should cause you to say, I'm so glad prophecy isn't just about charts. It's about his glory, the glory of my king, my lord, my sovereign. Oh, yes, come Lord Jesus. It should cause you to want to be interested in prophecy, but not for prophecy's sake. For the glory of Christ, he comes in his glory. How different it will be next time. How I love that. How every Christian loves that. Because every Christian who's really a Christian, truly a Christian, I mean, that is, that is our life pursuit. Glorifying Christ. Well, this, this will be the exclamation point of our life pursuit. Christ making much of Himself. Well, that's not all. Let's keep looking at some details again in verse 31. That was the obvious one because it says in His glory. But uh, he, he comes as, it says in verse 31, the Son of Man when He comes in His glory. I believe with all of my heart used here, that's a title for His dignity, a title for His supremacy, for His greatness. I don't believe it's a title used here for His humility or His humanity. Now, I realize if you want to have everything fit nicely and neatly in in nice little categories, you immediately think whenever Jesus is called the Son of Man, it's talking about His humanity, Son of God talking about His divinity. And I think you've just made your categories too nice and too neat. Maybe here's what you need to do. You need to get a Bible program or something like that and look up that phrase. Every time Son of Man is used, and you're going to find out, sometimes it's used for human beings because they're born of human beings. Sometimes it might be used for humility might even be used that way of Christ's humility, even his humanity. But don't miss this. There are certainly times that Son of Man is used in the context of messianic greatness, messianic splendor. I would even push it so far, it's actually used in the context of talking about divinity, not humanity. If you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 7, and we will see just such a passage. And given that it's talking about the coming Messiah in Daniel 7, and we're talking about the coming Messiah, or Jesus is talking about His coming as Messiah in Matthew 25, I believe this is is one of those cases where this isn't talking about humility. The context in Matthew 25 is not about humility. It's about glory. It's about greatness. This is about that. And so his description of himself when he says, the, the, the Son of Man, you should be saying, wow, Daniel's prophecy, he's great. I would love to preach on something someday that I could get excited about. You know, if you don't get excited about this, you just don't get excited. I mean, there is nothing, again, more important to me as a Christian that makes my heart beat more than the glory of Christ. That's what I was meant to do. That's what I was made to do by God in salvation. So look at Daniel chapter 7. Let's see. Son of man. This is, this is a, 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 a kingly title. Verse 13 of Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. That's glorious. One like, that's, not, that's not humble. That's glorious. In the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. There's our title. Was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. I take it that's God the Father and was presented before him. And to him, the one who's like the Son of Man from verse 13, was given, given by the Ancient of Days, was given 
Dominion. That's not humility. That's sovereign rulership. Glory was given dominion. Oh, there it is even. Glory, not humility. And a kingdom. That's glory, not humility. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. That's, that's glorious dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's sovereign, even divine dominion, which will not pass away. And His kingdom, not humility, is one which will not be destroyed. Yeah, that's King Jesus, Son of Man, the Divine One who will have a kingdom that will never, ever, ever come to an end. Isn't that good? That's how Jesus talks about Himself in His second coming. That is glorious. But that's not all. If you go back to Matthew 25, in verse 31, there's more detail to look at. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, we'll see that He's not alone. And all the angels with Him. Why would the angels be with him? Well, 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 no doubt they're accompanying him. But is anything in Matthew 25, is there anything in the context talking about the greatness of angels? By the way, the word angel, angelos, is the word for messenger. They're messengers. They're not great. They're there with him. And no doubt their message is what? Jesus Christ is glorious. And we are going to do what he tells us and wants us to do. I mean, all these angels are doing, if you will, is pointing to the supremacy of Christ. And notice it's all the angels. They're, they're just there to draw attention to Him. You, you might see a procession. And I think it's using procession kind of terminology. You see a procession, a wedding procession. And what is it about? It's about the beauty of the bride and the handsomeness of the groom. Is handsomeness a word? I don't know. It doesn't matter. You get the idea. But and it's, and it's all about the pomp and circumstance. And, and, and it's, you know, they've got all these people standing up with them, showing them love and support and all that stuff. Is it about the groomsmen? Is it about the maid of honor? No. It's about the bride and groom. Well, it's not exactly a one-to-one analogy, but you get the idea. They're, they're there to show how great Jesus is. Well, but that's not all. Keep reading in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. By the way, as a technical note, the, the NIV isn't very literal here. If you have that, sorry. It's, just a, it's a great translation, but it's, it's not word for word. It's more the idea. And the NIV says His throne in heavenly glory. That could confuse you and get you to think that the throne is in heaven. That's not the idea. Jesus is coming back to earth. And literally, the text says in the Greek New Testament, His glorious throne. It's great. Why would Jesus have a glorious throne when He comes back to earth? Because he's a glorious king. That's good, good. Why would he have a throne? Well, he's going to have a throne and he's going to sit on the throne because he's going to rule and he's going to judge because he has every right to because he's the glorious king. He's called the king, by the way, in verse 34. He's called the king in verse 40. It's fitting that he's on a throne. And that's where, I mean, at this point in time, I just say, you know, in one sense, let's just shut our Bibles and call it quits. You couldn't end on a better note than that. Although since Jesus is smarter than we are and He keeps talking, I guess you can. (laughs) But that lays the foundation for us, folks. When Jesus comes again, He will be unmatched in glory. It will be wonderful. 
Now, I think most of you would say, I agree so far, verse 31. But we're going to get into some things that may cause you in your flesh, in your sinfulness as you struggle, even as a Christian, to maybe not like some of the things you're about ready to see. We're all fine and good. We can all agree so far Christ is glorious. He's going to sit on the throne. But realize He's not just going to sit on the throne in a decorative sense. He's going to sit on the throne in order to do certain things that are also, because He's perfect, even though they might be unsettling to us, they're also perfect, the things He's going to do. Let's see. Let's move on to the second glorious manifestation of Christ at His second coming. Number two, His separation. His separation. And we're going to see what Jesus does when He comes back. What will He do? Look at verse 32 with me if you would. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. If you would just indulge me for a moment, I would like to say, before we get to what that means, maybe it would be good for us to maybe challenge our emotions a little bit and make sure our emotions are in check. When you read that, there might be a little voice in the back of your head that says, I don't like that. As we are, in one sense, all products of our culture and our pluralistic culture, philosophical pluralism, that's what I mean. There's something in us that says, "Eh, that rubs me the wrong way because that's exclusive. Jesus is going to separate It's exclusionary. It's divisive. Well, before we are so hasty to object to what it says here, before we are so hasty to perhaps think in our mind, what right does He have to do that? I just remind you, especially those of you who have a a short-term memory problem, maybe you drink too much NutraSweet like I do, We know what right He has to do that because of the verse we just read. Verse 31. He will come gloriously as the King. He will come and He will sit on His throne where He will rule and He will judge with the angels accompanying Him. Everything so far is said Jesus Christ has the prerogative to do anything He wants to do. Right? That keeps my emotions in check. That causes me to say, all right then. We're going to see some of this even tonight when we look at Genesis. If God makes the world, who does it belong to? It belongs to God. And guess what God can do? Anything God wants to do. And guess what? It's right. Well, Jesus, King Jesus here, has the prerogative because of who He is. We saw it in verse 31. Now let's talk about the meaning. It says in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before Him. I personally take the all the nations to be all of the people alive after the great tribulation and before Christ establishes His kingdom. Don't need to make a big deal out of it, but the chronology of Matthew 24, He's going to invite them into His kingdom. So we are pre-Christ's kingdom. He separates the sheep and the goats. I take it it's everyone who's alive after the great tribulation before His kingdom comes. 
I don't take this judgment to be the same as the judgment in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. Because by the way, when you read the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, that judgment comes after his kingdom. So if you try to stay consistent with the chronology, that's how I would take this. All the nations, I take everyone alive at that point in time. And I think it's everyone. Some people say all the nations here, because it's the Greek word ethne, from ethnos, is just the Gentiles. And sometimes the word ethnos is only referring to the Gentiles. But it's a mistake to say it's always limited to that meaning. I actually read someone who said, and whenever this word is used, in Matthew it always means Gentiles only. So this is not a Jewish-Gentile judgment. That's not true. It's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. Okay? Keep, remember, the authorities in the Bible. And everybody's wrong, including me, on things. Including you. Every time this phrase is used, is used of Gentiles and not Jews? Well, it's used in just a couple more chapters in Matthew 28, 19, the exact same phrase. Go and make disciples of all nations. I've never believed, and I personally, I'm sure there are people, I personally don't know of anyone who believes that's only limited to Gentiles and non-Jews. All nations, including Gentiles, because they're a nation too, including Israel. I think that's the point here, and I've made too much of it. Sorry about that. The point being, when Jesus comes, he's going he's to come at the end of the tribulation, and there'll be everyone who's alive during that time, and he is going to deal with all of them and separate the sheep and the goats. So Jesus will glorify himself. The context of this passage is the glory of Christ. He will glorify himself. He will show his greatness and his sovereignty by separating. And we need to be not only okay with that, as much as it might grieve our hearts that there will be those who are separated unto eternal condemnation, we need to not only be okay with that, we need to acknowledge His sovereign lordship and His supremacy and He has every right to do it. And ultimately, He will be worshipped for that. Because He's a just, fair judge. If He were unjust, then we wouldn't be okay with it. But He's a just, fair judge. He's going to do this. Look at verse 32. Let's keep things moving. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And as we will see, those who are on the right are there because they're going to be welcomed into Christ's kingdom. Those who are on the left are going to be there because those who are on the left get sent to hell. And don't quote me out of context on that as a political soundbite. Those who are on the left will be sent to hell. Okay? First hour didn't get it either, but I thought it was worth repeating. (laughs) It's not talking about politics. I take it that everything surrounding this, in one sense, horrible, horrible separation points to the glory of Christ because He's the just, fair King. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to number three, a third astounding display of Jesus' glory, which is His invitation Look at verse 34 with me, if you would. Then on that day, no doubt, based on what he's been talking about, the king, we know to be Jesus, will say to those on his right, they've already been identified as the what? Republicans? No, what? The sheep, right. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in my notes I wrote, how good is that? 
Nobody deserves to enter Christ's kingdom. We're all sinners. And he says, look, I mean, it's just amazing that he says what he says. It's absolutely amazing. I would like to ask you, what's the ultimate foundation, given that we are all sinners, what's the ultimate foundation or basis for him letting them in? Did you see that it's by sovereign grace that he lets them in? Look again at verse 34, partway through. Come, you who are blessed of my Father. That's, that's the grace part of sovereign grace. The reason they get in ultimately is because they've been blessed by His Father. That's the grace part of sovereign grace. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the sovereign part of sovereign grace. The only way anybody ever enters into Christ's kingdom, whether it be at that point in history or some other point, whether it be right now, if you were to breathe your last breath, is because of the sovereign grace of God. It's based upon His doing, His preparedness, and His blessing, not based upon our merit, right? And when that's the case, who gets the credit? If you guys don't know this, I'm going to preach a different sermon right now. Who gets the credit when entrance into Christ's kingdom is based upon God's sovereign grace? What did you say? (laughs) God does, right? All the credit, all the glory goes to God. And in this case, all the glory is going to go to God. Most certainly it's all going to go to Him. I wanted to make sure we pointed that out because if you didn't catch verse 32 and look closely about the blessed of the Father before the foundation of the world, that was before they could even do anything. If you didn't catch that, you might be tempted to fall into the horrible trap of thinking somehow it's because these guys were the good guys and the other guys were the bad guys and so he let them in the kingdom and he didn't let the others in the kingdom and it's based upon human merit. It's based upon blessed by the Father even to a place prepared before time even began. Riveted in your mind? Yeah, keep that in mind. Ultimate foundation for entrance into Christ's kingdom and His invitation, the sovereign grace of God. And in addition to that, what Jesus is now going to explain is, based upon that sovereign grace of God, if you really belong to God, you truly are a sheep and not just a sheep by mere profession, your life will show it. Specifically, your life will show it because you'll have a love for other Christians. You've got to have that in our minds. That's what he's going to argue here. But don't be confused. It comes after the blessed by of my Father. Otherwise, we have a different religion other than Christianity. Verse 35, look with me and you'll see it. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink i was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me no doubt poverty i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and to quote one respected bible Scholar Leon Morris, their lives give evidence that God has been at work in them. They're going to be welcomed into His kingdom based upon the sovereign grace of God that is proven to be true because their lives give evidence that they're not mere professors. Some people have a really hard time with this. And I don't really want to argue with you about it. I don't really want to debate with you about it, although I will. 
because it's all over in the Bible. It's not just here, it's all over the place. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus or minus nothing. In essence, that's what we've seen by blessed of my Father. But make no mistake about it, Jesus says it in all different sorts of ways, all over the place, as does Paul, as does James, as does John, as does Peter. If you've really experienced the saving grace of God, it will lead to a transformed life that will show that you're not merely saying Lord with your mouth without actually belonging to Him by His grace. We're not talking about work salvation, but we are talking about the fact that true, genuine salvation leads to good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. No doubt that's what he's talking about. Because look what he goes on to say. And the the listeners are somewhat perplexed at this point in time. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And, And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and and come to you? They're baffled by this idea. They hadn't actually seen Jesus or done any of these things for Jesus. Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. This is easy to understand, isn't it? Jesus is making the point. He's talking about the solidarity we have, the union we have as believers in Christ. He even counts us as his brothers. We belong to his family. He's sort of doing the opposite of what Paul, what he did with Paul in the book of Acts. And he confronts Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, Jesus says, me? Saul hadn't persecuted Jesus, had he? He persecuted his people. And in effect, by doing it to his people, he'd done it to him. It's the same kind of idea. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, it says, He who receives you, Jesus says to his disciples, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. It's the same kind of idea. They're not merely sheep by profession. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see in just a minute, those who will be condemned as goats profess to be sheep. I know they do because they're going to say, Lord, they don't belong. Just so we have it in our mind, this is a lot like what John talks about in 1 John. We're not going to take the time to go there, but you could just jot down a bunch of passages in 1 John that basically indicate this. If you're really a follower of Jesus, you'll love other followers of Jesus. And if you don't love other followers of Jesus... You can bah all day long. Does that, does that sound more like a goat or a sheep? I don't know. Didn't do that first hour. You can sound like a sheep, whatever that sounds like. <laughs> but if you don't have a love for other sheep, you're really a goat. That's First John. Listen, listen to what it says in First John chapter 3. Pretty, pretty hardcore. Takes the gloves off. First John 3.10 By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Whoa, really? You can find out obviously who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? I'm sure it's based upon whether or not they believe in the Trinity, aren't you? Well, the Trinity is vital. I'm sure it's based upon whether or not they believe in the deity of Christ, aren't you? Well, deity of Christ is vital. You might be surprised to hear what he says. 
How can we, how can we be sure who the children of God and the children of the devil are? To, to the point where it's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There you go. One of the clear evidences of whether somebody is going to be headed for Christ's kingdom as a true sheep as opposed to an imposter goat is their life. Specifically, do they have a true, genuine love for other Christians? And no doubt Jesus is getting at that. 1 John 3.10, 1 John 3.11, 1 John 3.14, 1 John 4.7, all the way down to verse 21. As Jim Boyce put it, they had a credible Christian profession. It wasn't hypocrisy. And I added the latter part of that. And again, you might have a problem with that. Take it up with Jesus. If you want to find other Bible scholars who support your point of view instead of mine, I can lend you the books. I have them. I've read them. But at the end of the day, it's amazing how clear Jesus is. Next, astounding display of Jesus' glory. And again, I remind you, the third one that we just saw, even what we saw there, that's glorious because it's in the context of the glory of Christ. And He has every right to do that. He's, he's gloriously allowing some to come into His kingdom. And He is gloriously shutting others out. His condemnation, we're going to see it here. Number four. Verse 41. Then He... I'm just going to insert something here from the context. Then he, the king who has every right to execute his justice. Don't forget. Then he will also say to those on his left. They've already been identified as the goats. Depart from me. Depart from me, the king. Accursed ones. And who curses them? Well, context would tell us God is the one who blessed the sheep. God is the one who curses the goats. Pretty heavy duty. The son is executing the just wrath and judgment of his father. This is what it says in John. John chapter 5, verse 22. He has given all judgment to the son. Yes, Jesus is love. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Yes, Jesus talks about meekness. Yes, Jesus talks about all of these soft, wonderful things that we emphasize at Omaha Bible Church in other passages. But Jesus is also the one who says, All judgment, John chapter 5, has been given to me by my Father. And ultimately, why would the Father give the judgment to the Son? Ultimately, it is no doubt to magnify the greatness of the Son. Because only the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Sovereign of sovereigns, can really execute justice and judgment. And then we see in verse 41, in one sense, this horrible, horrible statement. into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Isn't that horrible? 
think the reason he says it that way is so we would say, that's horrible. Not questioning Jesus' goodness. That's a horrible place. And who is Satan? Satan is horrible. I mean, I mean, I mean he, he's the model of horridness. He's the model of badness. Everybody knows. And for Jesus to say to those who will mouth the words, Lord, you are going to the place that was made for Satan. Is very severe. It's very, very severe. And here's why. Look at verse 42. And I'm going to insert something here, by the way. I'm going to insert who Jesus is from the context, and you'll see what I'm doing. Verse 42 For I, the king, was hungry and you gave me, the king, nothing to eat. I, the king, was thirsty and you gave me, the king, nothing to drink. Verse 43, I, the king, was a stranger and you did not invite me, invite me, the king, in. Naked and you did not clothe me, the king. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me, the king. Right? Because we know what's going on here. He associates himself with his people. And then verse 44, then they themselves also will answer, Lord, goats say, Lord. Lord, when did you see, when did you when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he, the king, will answer to them truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. They said the right thing. They talked Sheep talk? They were really goats? How do you know? Do you know who is and who isn't based upon what they say? Well, what you say is really important. A a good Christian confession or profession is is really good and, and, and vital. The Bible talks about that. But it doesn't only say that. It also talks about backing up your profession. Of saying, Lord, with giving evidence that you really belong to Him, that you've really been transformed, you've really experienced the new birth. And then comes the condemnation, as awful as it is, and I don't mean awful in the bad sense. Verse 46, These, the accursed of God ones, whose professions are empty as proven by their lack of love for Christians, these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, based ultimately upon the sovereign grace of God, from verse 34, into eternal life. Please, please, please know that what will be true at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus does this is in essence exactly what has been and will always be true when people meet God. If you meet God today because you breathe your last breath, you will be welcomed into the presence of the King by the King or you will be excluded from the presence of the King by the King who has every right and who has all knowledge 
and you will be welcomed into what does it say? How good into eternal life lasts forever. And it's good and right. Based upon the sovereign grace of God ultimately. Or you will be excluded even if you said, Lord, if it was a sham profession, wasn't genuine. And how does it, what does he say? He says, into eternal punishment. And that's why I always like to say, hell lasts as long as heaven. I thought I would say more today about heaven and hell and those kinds of things because they need to be said, but we're not going to do it today. We'll save that for another time. But these are really, really vital issues to consider. There couldn't be anything more vital than this. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is closing out his explanation of his return? Isn't it interesting that Jesus now is really getting ready to shift gears and go to the cross? And some of his final instructions are about the eternality of life with God and the eternality of life apart from God. It's important. In closing, he's going to damn people to an eternal hell. And he's going to welcome people into his eternal presence. And in the end, ultimately, it will be all for the greater glory of Jesus Christ. Someday, the Bible says, every knee will bow. It's not saying everyone will be a Christian. Every tongue will confess. They will agree with God that Jesus is, in fact, the sovereign Lord. Remember, everything in this universe, everything, whether you're talking about Bible prophecy or any other issue, everything is aiming toward one ultimate end, and it is the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is right and it is good because of who He is. That's why we live for Him. That's why our pulse is for Him. That's why we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we do all for Him. He's the sovereign king. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you that it's now afternoon and now here we are wanting to respond to you, the great God who has every right to do anything you want to do. And none of us deserve to be in your presence for eternity. And yet you make it so. You make it so for so many, the book of Revelation says we can't even count from a human eye. How gracious are you, God. How good you are. And we declare that together even as a church. And yet your eternal nature and your just nature even calls for you to damn those you will damn for eternity. As any violation against you is a violation against you, the eternal God, the Holy One. Lord, may you see fit by your grace to bring about repentance in people's lives today. You might shake people up who are goats and who talk like sheep. And by your grace, Lord, for those who are sheep, Lord, encourage and comfort and motivate so that our lives would be given to making much of you and not about anything else, ultimately. For your namesake, God, do these things. Amen.